Just King Things is a podcast where we read the books of Stephen King in publication order. As these are largely horror novels, they often deal with complicated and disturbing topics. A list of content warnings is available in the episode description. Howdy, friends and neighbors. Welcome back to Just King Things, the show where we read and talk about the books of Stephen King in publication order. I'm Michael, and with me, as usual, is Cameron. It sure is windy out here. That's right, it is. It sure is the storm of the century, yeah? <laughs> That's what they're saying on TV. I best smoke all my reefer. <laughs> In preparation for the storm of the century. Oh, 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 no. There's there's a dark and mysterious figure now approaching us. What, let's see what he has to say. I definitely need to smoke my reefer now. Pass me the blunt and I'll go away. Get me in the rotation and I'll leave. <laughs> smoke me out and I'll be good. Uh, that would be better. <laughs> that would be better than the book we read. <laughs> book, quotation marks on that one. But yeah. <laughs> that would be better than the text we read. Mm-hmm. If Andre, is his name Andre? Yeah, Andre. How'd he get there? How, Steve, how'd you get to Andre? <laughs> if you got to Andre Lenoche, mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, and and he was like, I need weed. The most important person on this island is that guy with all the weed. <laughs> give me that devil's light. Give me my lettuce. <laughs> yeah, that would be that would be something that I got to come out the gate. OK, OK. It's one of the worst things we've ever read on the show. Yeah, it's a weird one. Uh, we are coming off of like a banger series like the 90s of Steve are like overwhelmingly good. Is that is that our is that our stance now? I think so. Okay. Do we have an oppositional stance to that previously? Well, I think uh, I actually I think how uh, I'll phrase this is that many people take us like having critiques of things as mm-hmm. like in general hating them or not liking them, and so I sure. Do, and so I do feel like we've been pretty critical of '90s Steve, but I think you're correct in that um, '90s Steve is not as fondly remembered as 80s mm-hmm. Steve by the mm-hmm. general public. But one of yeah. the, but uh, there's actually lots of interesting stuff happening in the nineties, at least I think is what we've discovered. Right. And there mm-hmm. are like things where it's like, Oh, that's an interesting thing that he tried or good on that or whatever. There are more good books than bad. Yeah. And, uh, they are all, generally all readable, mm-hmm. meaning that I didn't struggle to get through any of them. Yeah. And that's pretty good. And I like, look, I, he's, you know, batting 750 or something, period. Most of Stephen King's books are readable, but there are like big chunks of uh, stuff in the 80s where it's just like, all right, we're slogging here. And it's a perennial complaint that the books are too long because that's true. Mm-hmm. But over what, like, you know, Dolores Claiborne, it's good. It's yeah. great. In fact, uh, Bag of Bones. Went a little too long. Got a little bit too much voice in it. You know what I mean? Working mm-hmm. in that character. I think the character is just too annoying. 
You know what I mean? Yeah. Now, here's the deal. Let me let me say one more thing here because you're right. People do take us being critical of anything as hating things. And once again, I must assert that if I hated Stephen King, I would stop doing the show. And uh, it is notable in the world, right, where most people, I would say 99 out of 100 people, have a show, have a podcast uh-huh. where they read things they hate or watch <laughs> things they hate or talk about things they hate. And so... Having someone uh, be critical of the thing while also generally enjoying it, you know, broad strokes, at least over 50% of the time, that's, that's, it's hard to square the circle on that. Mm-hmm. And yet here I am, a paradox of human experience. Mm-hmm. We're all people out here. Yeah. Well, I mean, but I'm you're not just content. You're, you're the uttermost paradox. So it's time for you to step onto the spaceship and ascend to Yesod and be judged. That's right. Mm-hmm. I'm about a man, but also uh, the salvation of all. Oh, right. In one thing. Mm-hmm. How could you do it? How could, how could a thing be both divine and flesh at the same time? Mm-hmm. That's me. <laughs> Whatever. I hope everyone knows it. Yeah. But no, I, yeah, I, I think you're right. People do still, for some reason, take our um, sometimes direct criticism as hatred. Well, it's not. Yeah. I, I like Steve just fine. He's my Uncle Steve. But to be absolutely clear, don't like this book. Yeah, but all of that said, <laughs> this one sucks. <laughs> it, to say that, to yeah. say all of that uh-huh. should make th- it crystal clear that when I say this one is bad, that I mean this one's bad. Yeah, This one should be struck from publication. This, sh- this one should not be read by human eyes or listened to by human ears, although it might make an okay audio drama. Yeah. The the fundamental flaw with this is it is a published screenplay, which are not good to read normally. Mm-hmm. And this one is made even worse to read because Stephen King's working in kind of three step three or four separate genres. And he has not broken his voice for television mm-hmm. is not good. Yeah. He just he just he can't do it. Um, and he writes in the voice of the 1970s, even here in 1999. <laughs> and it, it rings false. It doesn't translate. Go go over to patreon.com slash range touch. You're talking about the bonus episode where we watched the uh, three-part television film of Storm of the Century. I have some really positive things to say about that, but the, none of them are about Stephen King's words um, because it, I think it fundamentally at some core level w- doesn't work because of Steve, because of the things you know, we always have talked about on the bonus odes that um, the key to a good Stephen King adaptation is removing as much raw Stephen King text as possible. Mm-hmm. Keep the ideas, keep the characters, keep the, the concepts, uh, keep their motivations. He's created all that, right? But the words themselves do not ring true. They feel false. The situations feel contrived when they get put onto a screen. That's the case with that bonus episode. We'll talk more about that in that episode. But the the issue with Storm of the Century is that's all on the page. And so you don't even have the benefit of the cool Stephen King stuff that he normally does because it's all stripped out to have his like bad Twilight Zone episode that he's written. <laughs> yeah, that that's basically it. So in case uh, you don't know about Storm of the Century and everything we're saying is a little opaque to you, just to be utterly clear, in 1999, uh, Stephen King published a teleplay 
Storm of the Century simultaneous with that teleplay being produced as a miniseries on ABC. And this was kind of this is actually still even though we're marketing it out as something that's not particularly great. This is actually still of a piece with like 90s Steve, where we've seen him experiment a lot with uh, kind of where his position in the entertainment industry. Like, what can he Mm -hmm. do? What can he get away with? Like writing Desperation and Regulators, right, as these parallel novels and like releasing them on the same day, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Um so uh, the the Storm of the Century project is something that he describes in the intro as a novel for television, uh, where he he explains in the intro to the screenplay the process of getting it made and everything. Basically, he got an idea for a story and the way that he gets ideas for stories. He fiddled with it a bit, uh, started writing it as a screenplay, but also knew that he could flip it over and make it into a novel if he wanted to. But then as the screenplay uh, aspect started picking up or started seeming favorable, he decided, okay, this is going to be a novel for television. And there's all sorts of fun little winking asides in his introduction about how how he's good friends with Bob Iger, who really helped get this thing onto onto your TV screen or whatever. Uh, But that's really it. Like, uh, just he wanted to make this into a miniseries kind of as uh, the first pass. He got that done. Uh, we'll talk about that on the bonus episode, although I think a question we can ponder now is sort of why, because that is the question that I come away with, with this story Mm. is that, uh, it does feel, I mean, to like front load, I think one of maybe the core claims about this in terms of like composite King stories that we've talked about before, where he kind of revisits certain character types or situations or ideas. This Mm -hmm. is one of the most plainly composite stories that we've ever gotten from him. And there is really almost nothing new to it. No, that's maybe my frustration with it. Right. And people hopefully can hear not just like, uh, you know, unchained anger here. Right. But like, it's just frustrating because Steve is so good. And this is, as you're saying, so clearly just a rerun before we dive into that. Do you want to give us the five sentence summary, and then we can talk about some of the bigger, broader stuff? Because we, we, I think we do want to talk about uh, this big intro, maybe in even more detail. The five sentence summary is the part of the show where one of us, this time it's me, uh, gives off the top of our heads a summary of what we just read in five sentences, no more, no less. Uh, here we go. Here is Storm of the Century from 1999. The residents of Little Tall Island in Maine are beset by a massive winter storm. At the same time, they are visited by a mysterious figure named Andre Lenoge, who begins murdering people and mind-controlling them and doing all sorts of wacky magic shit. Lenoge ultimately demands that if they give him what he wants, he will go away, but he does not tell them what he wants for a long, long time. Turns out what he wants is to kidnap one of their children and raise it as his own. They're like, yeah, sure. The end. Yep. (laughs) The guy becomes a federal marshal at the end. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's it's pretty straightforward. Normally we need like a couple parentheses, a comma, Mm -hmm. semicolon, you know, to get through these things. This this is uh it's just Steve clearing his throat. Mm-hmm. 
before he goes on to write, presumably this is actually really the sequence, The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon, which is a wild one. Yeah. Like real experimental for Steve. It's next month's book if you're looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it. But experimental, weird, not like anything else he's ever done before. As far mm-hmm. as I can I can remember, I haven't reread it yet. But uh, I, I have fond memories of that book. I would say more uh, in the kind of American literary imagination, big capital L there, uh, than Bag of Bones is. And then like this is like this, Storm of the Century, going to the well, getting that dipper down. Having a nice cold sip of the same thing you've been doing for 30 years. <laughs> yep. I mean, and that's really the thing that gets me about it is like, I'm not quite sure. Well, like we can talk more about the intro and sort of like what Steve says his motivations are. But yeah. just the way that this doesn't do anything new, really, other than be mm-hmm. a thing that was written expressly for television in the first instance is just surprising to me. The uh, the thing that the thing I want to think about and hone in on here is in the introduction. And it really did. I read the introduction, obviously, first because in the beginning and I read the book and I went back and looked at this thing I'm about to mention. And I if you were to ask me, what is the core problem at, at the heart of Storm of the Century? What makes it bad? I think this is it. Do you, do you want to take a guess at what I think the core at its heart, the rotten core, the red eye, you know, the, 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 the tainted ring in the middle of Storm of the Century? Do you want to take a guess at what I think it is? This is something you deduced from the intro? This is something that is in the intro that he says is important to the story. Oh, gosh. Um no, I'm like totally blanking. I can't even think of this unless you mean the fact that he couldn't get Mick Garris to direct it. <laughs> that, I mean, that might be the problem. <laughs> I, you know, I didn't think about that, but that could be the issue. I, I, I don't want to like, I don't want to listen to the bonus episode again, where I don't really want to impugn Craig R. Baxley, who did direct it, because I actually I have some nice things to say about his choices. But continue. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think that I, I think pound for pound, if you want to experience Storm of the Century, you should watch the TV thing. Yeah. Um, it it has all the same problems as the book, but it has a lot of benefits the book does not have, like uh, being visual uh-huh. <laughs> and having music, <laughs> you know, <laughs> things like that. But um, Stephen King says, and it's just like The Mist in the way that, you know, content-wise, you know, it's like The Mist. All these people get together. They have to make a a, a kind of decision about how they're going to deal with an external threat, and then they are uh, fractured because of it, right? We'll we'll Mm -hmm. get into some of that later on. But you're right, same framework. For The Mist, he says, you know, uh, it kind of came from an experience he had, if we remember back to our skeleton skeleton crew, I want to say key every time, skeleton crew (laughs) episode. He said it came from a real experience he had, right? They had a, a bad storm, and he took him and one of his kids uh, you know, they go to the grocery store and he had this mental image, right, of this like pterodactyl looking thing flying in and like landing in the meat aisle. Mm-hmm. And that was a powerful image. And he talks about that here that, you know, sometimes an image will grab him and then do that. And I, you know, I I find that delightful. That's not how I really approach any kind of writing. I also don't do a lot of, of kind of fiction writing at all. So, so it wouldn't. But my, my nonfiction writing, right, uh, my book or whatever, my academic work or criticism, any of that stuff, it often starts from like a thing I saw or any, a, a particular moment or an experience, you know. Um, 
I, I, it's a thing I recognize in Steve where it's like, oh, I can latch into like a thing and then draw a bunch of conclusions out of it. You know, mm-hmm. that, that, so I, I always like to hear him talk about that stuff. And it's come up a few times, but the one from the mist is one that's rattling around in my head all the time. Probably he was like, and I like, what if, what if, what if a kid saw a really sexy car? <laughs> they just let you know that that's probably the root of christine right, right. Mm-hmm. what if i got jerked off by a ghost you know that's that's <laughs> what would that feel like that's from that's bag of bones i had an image of a man being jerked off but what was jerking him off and i realized <laughs> it was a ghost <laughs> uh, by the way i want to mention from previous episode right we we pitched the uh I've never been jerked off by a ghost shirt. We got a lot of feedback that said I would buy that shirt. <laughs> so we might want to think about a design that we can put together. Mm-hmm. That would be maybe like a ghostly hand mm. that's like made of plasma. <laughs> I don't, we'll figure it out. Yeah. You know, if, if people got a pitch for the visual of never been jerked, maybe the text just works. Yeah. You know, maybe this is a thing that doesn't need a visual, but I do see like a, like a ghostly hand surrounded by like a like text in a seal you know what i mean <laughs> yes anyway he says in the intro I'm, I'm beating around the bush here talking about our jerked off by ghost shirt he says in this intro that this book slash screenplay slash novel for television which is a phrase i'd never heard before <laughs> he says it begins with an image of a man sitting on a jail cell um bed with his feet, his socked feet drawn up, staring out, dead-eyed. My assertion is that that image of a man staring forward, socked feet drawn up in a jail cell, is not a good one. I think it's a bad image to like try to string a narrative around. A pterodactyl flying into the grocery store and eating, eating on the meat aisle. Yeah. That's something you can grab onto. Guy who's sitting in sock feet. And here's how you know it's bad. Okay? Go over to patreon.com slash range touch. Check out the bonus episode. Maybe maybe pull up Storm of the Century yourself. Here's how you know it's a bad image. It doesn't work in the movie. Yeah. I mean, there, that's the thing, right? Is that there are, once you watch the thing, there are multiple, I would say, instances where you do get, like, cool Linoge imagery. Yeah. Right. Like there are there are some iconic things that I that uh, Linoj gets to do. But sitting in that jail cell is not really one of them. No. And it it is the core conceit that the rest of the thing is strung around. Mm-hmm. And because of that, I think I really and truly think it's like the rotten heart of the thing, because the whole rest of the narrative spins out of a justification for how Steve can write that image into fiction. And it doesn't right. work. Like, it just doesn't, because it begins with a murder that he does, and then there's a contrivance to get him arrested, and then there's, like, the whole scene around the arrest and walking through and talking to all those people, right? And then he, like, commits all of these telekinetic murders, these Satan murders, out of his jail cell, because, again, we have to contrive the story to get him into that image. I think it actually, I think if Steve had taken what he landed on at the end and was like, I'm going to write that image out of it it would be a stronger work Mm -hmm. because he never has to go to jail. It's actually maybe better. And, and here's how, you know, he never has to go to jail. He breaks out of jail Uh for the last third. And then the thing's pretty good. 
because it turns into these people kind of waiting for him to come out of the storm, tell things to them, right? He becomes this kind of like evil ghost-like figure or whatever. Anyway, this is all to say, he doesn't need to be in jail. And I think that that actually actively harms the fact that we have to contrive a, a way of getting him in jail. Not a reason, just make him a murderer. Simple. Uh, but that that fundamentally breaks the thing, makes it lesser than it could be. Yeah, I mean, the we'll, we'll have more to say about this on the like bonus episode about the series, but this... Uh, this is a story that is built on a mystery or like a question, right? That there is a question that happens like Andre and Lin, like the, the, the island's getting shut down because the storm's coming big old storm. Okay. Like that's bad. But then Linoz shows up, murders people, has all sorts of zany magic powers and keeps saying he wants something. And the, you have a mystery going for a little bit, which is like, who is this guy and what does he want? And then when you find out, what he wants, well, actually, you find out sort of what he is before you find out what he wants. But when you find out what he is, it's just like, what? Like, it's so arbitrary and weird. And as as you were saying, like, it all seems geared to just, like, have a guy who can sit in a jail cell but still do scary things and then he can leave that jail cell when he wants, and the plot needs him to do things more actively. Yeah. I think the the real issue here is broadcast television. Mm. Because it clearly sets the parameters for what can and cannot be in the thing. And this would be perfectly fine as like a De Laurentiis company movie in like 1984. And it's a slasher film. And Andre Linoge mind controls like nine people in a role to do devious murders on each other. And then reveals he's a wizard or whatever. At the <laughs> yeah. End. I, that's fine. That would actually work great. And it would be 90 minutes as opposed to four and a half hours. Because so much of this is just like you said, it, it's, it needs kind of television readable characters which means when Stephen King does that, they're always very flat. And so they're very, very flat, one-dimensional people who then kind of ping-pong into one another and are only there to be kind of cardboard standees for Andre Linoge to do stuff to. Yeah. But, you know, that that's the thing. And so, we the, unfortunately, we have to spend uh, two-thirds of our journey with these other people. Not mm -hmm. with Andre Linoge's like murder, uh, you know, wonder murder factorium or whatever. <laughs> uh, you know, it, like it can't be a slasher film. It, at its heart, I think Stephen King wants it to be a slasher film, but knows that for broadcast TV, you can't and turns it into a Twilight Zone episode with slasher tendencies. And it just it kind of it just doesn't work like like structurally, it doesn't work. And that maybe has to do with the fact of our main character being a straight up rerun of the guy from needful things. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, if, if it's a, just how I put this in the notes, this is in terms of composite stuff, right? This is so transparently a rerun at needful things with elements of the mist. And then also like, uh, a, let's say 75%, uh, uh, opacity Randall flag thrown in mm -hmm. for good measure. Right. Uh, and so, yeah, the the main character, uh, Mike Anderson, 
is just like the the best guy on the island, like the small town cop with the heart of gold, who is also the manager of the local grocery store. And everything is engineered for him to be woefully disappointed by his neighbors and most of all, his wife. Uh, his his wife, whose name I, I, I don't know anyone's name other, other than Andre Linoge in here. Mm-hmm. Uh, Molly is her Molly, name. Molly, yeah. She is maybe Steve, like Stephen King is back in 1975 here. Mm-hmm. She is the worst written woman in in 30 years for him. Yeah. It's wild. Yeah. No, I, there is a, a lot of stuff about this that feels like a step back in terms of like what you're talking about. And also, I think a thing that maybe uh, we need to make clear her also is that there are like a zillion characters in this story and it's impossible to keep any of them straight. Like it's a little bit easier to keep them straight when you're watching it and they have faces. Uh, but in reading it, it is, it's like, who is this person? What are they doing? Because he's trying to do what he does in the novels really well, like mm-hmm. uh, Salem's Lot or Needful Things, where it's like, here are these characters, like this, here's a like small town, here are these people who live there, and here's kind of all their little stories. But what he cannot do, and this is where, um, I think I've said this before, I don't remember like what context this could have been from. Maybe it was like the sorry right number teleplay or something, but... The things that are Stephen King's strengths as a writer are not things that make for strong screenplays, Uh, because when he's writing in a novel, he can do something like Salem's Lot, where he's got this like little mosaic or like patchwork of like all these characters. And we get a couple paragraphs in this person's head and then one paragraph in this person's head. And like in that paragraph, Steve can do a lot of work. He can tell you, here's what this person does for their job. Uh, Here is like their most uh, tragic disappointment from when they were in high school. Uh, (laughs) And here's their relationship with their like significant other or their parents or something, right? Steve can work that really quick. And because of the way his novels work, the way prose works, uh, you're just like, okay, that's who that person is. You can't do all of that little detail filling in uh, in a screenplay, or rather you can. He tries in some ways, and that's one of the uh, uh, sort of failures of the screenplay is that the the descriptions get super expository for things that – ultimately cannot be represented in any way visually. So they just fall out of the actual thing that you watch. Uh, And then uh, when you're watching it, it's just like, oh, okay, here's a bunch of characters who all kind of have, like, I know that this person is married to this person and this kid is their kid, but I don't know anything about them other than the fact that they are someone who may end up getting killed by Linoge, like everyone. Yeah, I, I, I'm not trying to pile complaint upon complaint here, but yeah, I think that you're you're highlighting like a really critical issue here, which is that what makes needful things work to the to, to the best that it does. You know, I'm not the biggest mm-hmm. fan of that book, or or what makes Salem's Lot work, which you know I'm still a huge fan of that. What makes them work is that it's not just the mosaic, as you said, like that's a part of it, but there's an additional step, which is you can get their perspective on the world. When you're finding out about the worst thing that happened to them in high school or their biggest disappointment, you know, when they were 13, mm-hmm. you that's that's in order to inform you about their perspective on the world. Right. And by virtue of a screenplay, if someone does not, especially one that's in a made-for-TV movie, right, which is like, 
going to be made very quickly. And it's Stephen King. It's going to be understood to be a cash cow, right? Like no one else other than Mick Garris working on the stand with Stephen King. No one else is going to have like a 150 day shooting schedule. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like they got to hammer this bad boy out. And so you don't have the time. And Stephen King has no inclination. You know, he has no interest in giving you a cinematic language to communicate these things, right? There are no people who are like looking at objects in the world and then flashing back to an experience they had, right? Like there, there's no there's no flashbacks here. There's no use of cross-cutting between like someone and what they're looking at in order to give you their opinion on the thing. Good old-fashioned cool shop effect, right? Mm-hmm. Montage uh, cinematic work. There's no, Stephen King has no, interest in the edit as part of the grammar of cinema. I am so sorry to report that the edit is, in fact, the critical part of the grammar (laughs) of cinema. And because he doesn't put that in, he puts expository language, as you just said, right, about these people in there as a stand-in for what he would normally do in a novel, which is, like, give you their perspective on the world. Let them monologue a bit in their head. Oh, he thought, looking down at the house at the end of the lane. I never want to go back in there again in the summer of 55. My, you know, that stuff, right? You know, mm-hmm. give us that paragraph of the little weirdo who like knocked on the door and a ghost grabbed him by the pinky toe, right? We would normally get that in, in a Stephen King. We can't get that here because it can't be visualized. And King will not write in. He is allergic to writing in what the camera is looking at as a way of making meaning as opposed to exposition. Mm-hmm. If we're looking at the lighthouse, it's because the something's happening to the lighthouse. Stephen King is never going to write into a screenplay. We're looking at the lighthouse because it stands in for Mike's ability to command the town, mm-hmm. right? Something like that. And so you, it, it's his like good old fashioned dance macabre like allergy, right? Like his allergy to baking in. You know, th- this is disgusting. There's, there's, there's a, there's a reason we never use this word on the show, but it is helpful sometimes, right? Ninety-nine percent of the time, I'm going to say it's not going to be. This is the one percent of the time it's helpful. His allergy to thinking through symbols and symbolism in like a <laughs> middle school way makes the makes the text worse. Um, and so, basically, as you just said, right? Yeah, the whole thing is just like expository characters doing exposition to one another, and occasionally the screenplay just flatly telling us what they're about. Yeah, uh, and there's 500 of them, including like seven children that you got to keep straight. <laughs> Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's just a real, it's a mess. It is a mess, and which is so unfortunate because, like, late 90s Stephen King is not someone I associate with making a mess at this point. He mm-hmm. might not make things I like the whole way through, but overall, more than 50% of them are good, and they're not messy. They might be a little long. They might be uneditable. Uh, they might be, uh, you know, have, like, weird tragic backstories stapled onto the end in order to like speak about racism for some reason because he thought that was important to do in the mid-90s. Um, but they're but they're not a jumble. Mm-hmm. This is a jumble. Yeah. Yes, jumble is a great way to to think about it. Cause the other thing that um well like the other gear that slips here, right? Um think about Salem's lot. Uh, small town taken over by vampires. Like that's literally what's happening. But if you go back and listen to that episode and if you read like anyone who does like a, you know, critical uh, uh, thinking about that novel, uh, you are able to extract from that story a message wherein the vampires 
represent something, right? The vampires become a very effective way for metaphorizing like the decay of trust uh, among neighbors and like, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, the decline of like rural life and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. People are moving away to the city. He's talking about that in the book, right? Right. Like, you know, these are not even hidden. They are they are themes (laughs) of of the work. Right. And that's and uh, one thing that is, I think, probably maybe definitive of early King and maybe like, you know, a a strength of King throughout his career is that he is good at coming up with uh, the situations wherein uh, big, scary, supernatural element uh, nicely functions as a symbol or metaphor for whatever deal he's working with. Right. Like, uh, uh, like Cujo in Cujo is like the, the venom of Castle Rock kind of in its broadest sense, but it's also like, uh, Cujo comes to embody like the uh, transgressions right in that marriage, right? There's a way mm-hmm. in which like even though Cujo is not a result of the affair that uh, the wife has uh, because of the ways that King works language and so on and so forth, like it comes to embody um, that problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Here, it is literally a wizard did it. Like this guy shows up. What what is he? What's going on? This is what's keeping us going for the first two thirds of the story because it's broken up into three parts. It's like, what is what is he like? What the hell is Andre Linoche? How can he do all this stuff? And it turns out he is a explicit like the most explicit you could possibly get without him being like fucking Gandalf, a wizard with a staff and a cloak. Yeah. That's the coolest part. Like, I'm on board for that. I'm really on board for the last third of this. I, I, I like the whole thing, I think, is just a bad. I don't think it works. Yeah. I think it's a bad novel for television. <laughs> I think the last third is awesome. I like the like uh, debating on on, you know, do we do we sell our children to the wizard? Yeah, that's yeah. cool. I, and I like that he's a wizard. I just wish I'd learned he was a wizard earlier and not like he opens his mouth. and He has fangs. He has uh, you know, he's wearing black contacts like those things. That's like cheap 1950s TV stuff uh, that like it doesn't translate well. I think the effects look OK for when they when they came out. But, you know, people are not putting the big bucks behind this one in the way that it seems like they did for the Mick Garris productions uh, or even the production of it. Mm-hmm. And the uh, I, you know, I, I just want to skip to the wizard. Have him show up as a wizard. <laughs> Be like, I'm a wizard. Have him cast fireball in the middle of town. He obliterates, <laughs> you know, he obliterates old woman Mert over there, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. She's incinerated. Aunt Mert gets incinerated yeah. into dust. <laughs> she blows away in the early morning wind as the storm comes in, right? Right. And he says, you have to give me one of your children. Figure out which one. I'll be back in one hour to obliterate another person. Right. Well, and that's that's sort of what I'm getting at. Right. Is that I actually I also like that he's a wizard, but it's like the way that he is revealed to be a wizard. It it feels like such a swerve out of what every everything that has come before where he is presented Mm -hmm. as like demonic and the devil and, you know, the snake fangs and all that stuff. Yeah, I think it would be stronger if he just showed up and was a wizard immediately. And then everyone spent the next several hours dealing with the fact like, okay, we've got an evil wizard on the island. What do we do? Yeah, make it a locker because it is. That's that's the look. Let me say a bunch of positive things about this. Steve's got it figured out like he understands what what can make the engine of this work. You put him on an island, 
and you give them a bad storm. So it turns the community into a, like a locked room story. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Great. Make them hate one another. Because this is all the myth stuff too, right? Like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Make them all hate one another arbitrarily because like an evil thing is there. Also good. It works. Go back to the well, right? Like that's a good well. That's needful things in the mist. Okay, cool. But the the threat being first terrestrial and then like psychic, right? You know, he's using mm-hmm. TK to puppet these people, make them do murders and whatnot, and sometimes murdering themselves. And he's got that, and then making it wizard stuff. It's just, it's just, it's a like I said, it's a jumble. It do, that doesn't work, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think it would have been great if he appeared on the island. He's like, look, your communications are knocked out. Maybe this is it. I'm, I'm, I'm talking my way to what I, what I really think. Right? We're getting, we're getting it live here. I, I have not considered it this way before, but now I can put it into terms. I think that we discover that Linoge is a wizard at the exact same moment that Stephen King decided Linoge was a wizard. Yeah, that's kind of the feeling I have too, <laughs> right? <laughs> it doesn't feel like that had been decided at any point before the moment he turns into a wizard. <laughs> like, he's not leaving these stones around. That's a cool thing, by the way. Right. Yeah, like what if at every murder, one of his little stones had had turned up and they were like, what are these stones? Why are they showing up? Uh, and then once all of the murders have been completed, then they have the full set of stones to do his stupid little ritual. Right. Because they have to use they have to use these stones to like. Uh, it's the lottery. Uh, they do a lottery. Yeah, they do a lottery at the end. Yeah. It should be the whole thing should be written from the perspective of the person who administers the lottery at the end. <laughs> It's a seven-year-old child. Yeah. <laughs> You'll never believe what happens. Uh, but yeah, they, they he has this little bag of stones and like, uh, what, all are black except for one, which is white. Yeah. And then whoever draws the white stone, you got to give up your kid to the wizard. Yeah. And he's, yeah, I love the part where he's like, these are the weirding stones. They were old before Atlantis sank beneath the waves, which is awesome wizard shit. Like, I love that. That is cool. It's not even sank beneath the waves. He says that before it sank beneath the African Ocean. Yeah. So, like, Awesome wizard stuff, but also coming at a point where you've spent the last like four hours of your life being like, is this guy like the literal Satan? Is he just some sort of monster? No, he's like a he's a wizard, right? He is like an ageless wizard. It's a yeah, it is a little bit like like a rug pull here where Mm -hmm. you think you're dealing with a Satan, but you're really dealing with a wizard. And I think Steven's like kind of playing with like maybe these are one in the same, Mm -hmm. you know, because that's what Linoge essentially says, right? Like, yeah. I've gone by many names. The blue, the white. <laughs> it would be better if you were just Gandalf. Yeah. That, that would also be good. But I but yeah, I think that uh it's it's the rug pull without just telling us it's a rug pull. I think that would even work better if it's like, oh, we think this is a Satan. And then he's like, You've called me by Satan, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh you think that there's a god up there. You know, going back to like old 70s, early 80s, Steve, right? You think there's a God up there. You think there's some sort of divine battle between good and evil. There's not. Mm-hmm. I'm just an evil wizard. <laughs> <laughs> and y'all keep inventing religions about me, but I'm just a wizard. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I think that if we got a little bit more of like mean spirited Steve here, that would have made it uh, a little bit better, too. But he he tries to thread the needle 
And it's the 90s. I get it, right? You want a little angelology here. You want a little bit of Christian stories. We get the whole abortion narrative we can talk about. Yeah. But uh, but basically, it's like all of these characters have to navigate Linoge, um, who's like a Satan-turned-wizard eventually. And it's that navigation that is less than interesting and eats up so much of the plot. So maybe we can talk about those. We got, uh, what was his name, Mark? Mike, the main Mike. character. Yeah, there we go. We got Mike, the main character, and his wife, Molly. Mike runs, uh, he is the shopkeep for like the town grocery store on the island. Yeah. And also his wife runs like the daycare slash preschool. Yeah. Okay, we get them. Center of the community right there. Yes, Mike is also the constable. Mm-hmm. We got some other guy who <laughs> is a re- the realist. He's the, he's the mayor from uh, Jaws. Yeah. <laughs> like uh, straight up, right? He is both the mayor and like the head real estate developer. What's that fellow's name? I don't remember. Uh, or the character. Uh, the character in this, his name is Robbie. Robbie Beals. Robbie, right. Yeah, so we get Robbie. Uh, he's another major guy here, and uh, he's kind of the he, he he's straight up the mayor from Jaws, right? Like everything mm-hmm. that the constable sheriff says that is like that we as the audience recognize as good practice and a good wise thing to do. Robbie is there to be like, not uh, not on my island. I'm I'm the town manager, right? And he's uh, yeah, right. He's he's the politician. Like one of the first things we learn about him. This is one of the reasons Linoge reads is so much of a Satan figure is that for the first two thirds, actually. Yeah, for most of it, like what he does is he like looks at you and he's like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. here's a sin that you committed that you think you've kept secret from everyone. But I know about it. Uh, so that's you that's- fought it once in church. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, my God. He knows. Uh, and so like one of the first things we learned about Robbie, right, is that when his mother died in I a nursing home. I think you mean home, to say the only thing we learned about Robbie. OK, well, technically, we also <laughs> learn he has a son and his son is also a shithead. <laughs> That's that's right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to interrupt uh, with a fact. Uh, I'm I'm sorry to interrupt by asserting that there's one fact when there are in fact two. I'm sorry. Yeah, <laughs> that is my mistake. Uh, but he uh, when he like goes into the house where Martha Clarendon, who's the first person that Linoge kills, he goes into her house and Linoge is waiting for him, and he's like he tells him uh, about. Uh, oh, yeah, when your mother died in that nursing home, you were seeing a, a, a sex worker in Boston. He doesn't say that, right? He, he says, mm-hmm. <laughs> but... Um, uh, he that, says they were in New York, you mean? But yes, exactly. You you put the Boston... You're, you're, a, you're a local guy. You wanted uh-huh. to have Boston in yeah, the story. Yeah, I got I to put the rep in. Um, <laughs> right. Uh, but like, so that's, that's kind of the thing that Linoge does. It's right. Oh, here's your deep dark secret. Uh, but then that's also, that lets us know the type of, uh, shitty and feckless that Robbie is. Mm -hmm. And it's the same deal as needful things, right? Mm -hmm. Like people have a deep dark secret and here it's like bad stuff they've done. Whereas in needful things, it's like desires and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. You know, that sometimes are attached to a bad thing they did, but sometimes aren't. Uh, no magical evil cars here, unfortunately, um, for a, for an ace Merrill to drive the, uh, but yeah, so he, he does that. Uh, he, he, uh, murders the old woman who exists only to be murdered, mm-hmm. which is, uh, interesting, I guess. Yeah. Uh, really a lot of just exposition for us to learn about the weather. We have those people. We've got the young couple. What, oh, yeah. what are their names? Uh, Katrina is the. A uh, girl and the boy is Ben or Billy? I think it's Billy. I think you're okay. right. 
we got them. They show up here. They they kind of matter. Uh, what we get from her, they both have a deep, dark secret. Mm-hmm. She went to Derry to get an abortion. Ooh. And he has been cheating. Mm-hmm. And uh, so those get brought up, and they uh, they end up murdering one another, right? Uh, he tries to get that Linoge tries to get Billy to murder her psychically, uh, mm-hmm. but he resists. And so then he seizes control of her and makes her murder him. And That's then, right. and then she survives to the end. And actually like that plot line never really gets any sort of capper to it because there's a immediately after she's like in shock. Cause she gets, she just right. got mind controlled into beating this guy to death. Uh, but there's like a, little sort of friction in the, in the townspeople who are all sheltering in like the town hall. Uh, and they're like the, the men, this is there's gender is a thing that's going on here. Cause the men are like, well, she just beat that guy to death. And all the women are like, please, she's in shock. Uh, mm-hmm. and you think that there's going to be some sort of like, you know, flare up around that, but really everyone kind of forgets that she beat her boyfriend to death. I suppose understandably, like once the wizard shows up and everyone's like, yeah. okay, I guess you're off the hook on account of the wizard. Yeah. There's a wizard rule. Yeah. That's in the constitution. <laughs> that was, that was the, uh, that's like in the bill of rights, uh-huh. you know, it was like, they finished the constitutional convention or, you know, they got the constitution. They were like, Oh my God, there's all this stuff we forgot about. And they put in like 7.2, you know, and uh, down in there, it says, if a wizard made you do it, you're not responsible anymore. <laughs> it's an important part of it. But uh, but yes, so it, it does. I mean, also, it seems like King just forgets about everything that happened before the wizard reveals himself as a wizard. Like none of that stuff really ends up mattering. There's also um, the sheriff's deputy slash um, uh, assistant, the kind of Barney Fife here. Yeah, Hatch. Hatch. And. Uh, he is also married, but I don't know what her name is at all. I don't even know if it's said. Yeah, I'm sure it is, but it, I don't know. It is, and it doesn't exactly matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Um, she she dies off screen at yep. the end anyway. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so they, there's him as well, and he's like a little bit cowardly or whatever, and he's um, the our, Mike's best friend and, who ultimately like turns his back on Mike at the end. That's kind of his function. In, mm-hmm. in the thing is to be like the final betrayer. Uh, you thought your wife might be the final betrayer. It's not. It's your best friend <laughs> who looks like a smaller, wider version of you. Check out the bonus episode. Patreon.com slash range touch. Got a lot to say about the visual representation of all these characters. And so each of these have their own like little moment. And, you know, there's the guy I was talking about at the very beginning. It's like revealed. He's like a like a, a, a like a marijuana smuggler in Maine. Right. Uh, which I didn't even know existed, I guess. I mean, I guess you got to get it somehow, but I just never thought about that being like, it comes in off the boats from Europe? Where's it coming from and where's it going on, on Mainer Island? I, guess I, I assumed asking. it was coming down from Canada. Oh, maybe so, right? Uh, mm-hmm. d- d- kind of a Twin Peaks? Yeah. You go across the border to Canada, it's just a wild west up there. Yeah. Whatever you want. <laughs> uh. But yeah, so we got that guy. He like he gets mind controlled into like hanging himself. Um, and then a few people get mind controlled into doing various other things. But again, that's all not thought about. And it's also unclear why they all killed themselves, or like why why did he make all these people die? Mm-hmm. Can you tell? Ta- can you explain that to me? Absolutely not. Because one of the other big problems narratively here is that uh, Lenoge spends the first 
two and a half parts of a three-part story saying repeatedly, if you give me what I want, I'll go away. The thing he does not tell them is what he wants, ever. Yeah, you can imagine, like, here's a, here's a rewrite, okay? Mm-hmm. In the very beginning, he we'll just keep it, we'll keep all of Stephen King's images he wants, right? Feet up, sock feet, prison bed, gets arrested. I'll, I'll allow that to exist, even though it doesn't need to. He's not revealed to be a wizard. He says plainly and clearly to, uh, to our sheriff, constable, he says, give me one of your children and I will go away. Yeah. And they say, you're, what are you talking about? No, that's, that, you're a murderer. We're not going to do that. And he says, okay. And then he does all this other stuff, right? Mm-hmm. He's murdering people. And, and as these people die, they have these placards and scrawlings and graffitis that say, give me what I want and I'll go away. Mm-hmm. And then at the end, he like he gives the reason for it, right? I'm a wizard, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. It, the whole thing would make more sense. It would work better. It, currently, the only thing getting you through the middle of the book is like hoping for more murders that are more interesting. <laughs> yeah. and that's actually a little bit, uh, it, you can feel King constraining himself for TV here, right? And it, he does say in the introduction that there are some things that had to be not shown for whatever. But like, all of the kills, which presumably is what we're here for in the middle third, right? Like that's that's all that is here, uh, is seeing people get killed. The only they're they're all really pedestrian. Someone yeah. gets bashed in the head to death. Someone gets um, drowned. Drowned. Someone gets axed. They axe themselves in the head, which is neat but not interesting. Um, and someone hangs. You know, they're not they're they're not things that you're like. Oh wow, a wizard did it. <laughs> you know, I don't yeah. know. That like I think there's a way that you could like jazz that up a little bit, at least make that little third just keeping it the way it is and make it a little bit more exciting, but you're constrained by TV. So I get it. I, I understand, but it feels like he's already like self-censoring himself. Have like someone erupt full of bugs, you know? Why not? Yeah. Yeah, why not? Uh yeah, and so like there is so there's a way that you can like sort of bullshit an explanation for all of the weird like circling that happens here, which is that uh, Leno, because eventually one of the things that Lenoge does is he like kidnaps a bunch of people who are a bunch of like villagers who are at the, the shelter uh, and a few like a day later or something. One of them comes back. He's killed most of them. But one of them comes back. Her hair's turned completely white because Steve loves that uh, when someone sees something scary and their hair turns white. Hey, look, me too. <laughs> if someone sees something scary and their hair doesn't turn white, I think it's not scary enough. <laughs> That's a problem with the text. Uh, and so uh, she comes back and she explains that. Uh, or how does she put it? She says something like, "He he wants something, uh, but we have to give it give it to him, right? He can't just because they're like, well, why doesn't he just take what he wants?" And she's like, "I think he can't take it. Like we have to give it to him." So there's like some bullshit fairy logic here. And what he uh, seems to be doing, if you're willing to be the most charitable reader, uh, is that he uses all of his powers to terrorize people to get them to agree to giving him what he wants because he like he can do all this other stuff, but he simply cannot take the child freely. Mm-hmm. Okay, 
sure. But I like your idea that if he is just upfront with what he wants, then everything kind of goes a bit more smoothly and frankly seems a lot more like sinister. Yeah. Just make him more evil. <laughs> make him an evil wizard. <laughs> Be brave enough to make him an evil wizard. Um, I, you know, it might probably it might feel like we are like beating around the bush about talking, uh, uh, you know, what do you call it? Talking about like the meat and potatoes of this thing. Part of what makes this thing not so good is there really isn't any. Mm -hmm. Like there's a lot of what feels like just filler. Like there are conversations to space out the murders. Other than that, there's really not a lot. Like these are so one-dimensional characters that there's not a lot to talk about. The, I guess the one thing maybe to talk about is like that, as you said, there's like some real gender stuff going on and it does feel like this is retrograde for Stephen King because like Molly is a uh, one-dimensional housewife, you know, who like has a housewife business essentially, right? Like Stephen uh -huh. King has no interest in thinking more about it, right? It's like, She's a homemaker. She's so good at being a homemaker, she'll be a homemaker for your kids too. That's like the extent of it. Even though it's like a like a child education facility, we get so little about that and about her like interiority about it, her opinions about it. I don't think she talks to another human being about it. Yeah. Like we know it exists, right? And we know it's a site of panic because the kids are there or like the kids start there or whatever. But like the, the it opens with her inability to get a child's head unstuck from a banister. Mm -hmm. And she she is like, I can't figure it out. I'll call my husband. Um, it starts there. And she just progressively makes bad decisions that, uh, that, that set her up to be either in a panic or mm -hmm. betray her husband. Yeah. Or to make his life more complicated. Right when she, they like just decide to go to the grocery store for no reason, right? And like I'm, I'm not like this is not a real human being, right? I'm not critical of Molly the character because she is not real, right? Mm -hmm. I'm critical of the decisions that are being made by Stephen King to to manufacture a particular, I guess for him, TV image of a woman that exists in like 1957, uh, in order to give things to give plot complications beyond the Satan that they got to deal with for Mike, our main character. Yeah. I mean, cause that's the arc, right? Is that Mike mm -hmm. is a, uh, a guy who is basically decent. He is, uh, Alan Pangborn again, right? He, mm -hmm. He's like, he is a, just a genuine decent guy who, uh, wants to do the right thing and wants to help other people do the right thing. Uh, and his arc is becoming increasingly, uh, surprised by his wife and how heartless she can be so like one of the first big pivots is when she's like hugging him and she asks him and this is something that king mentions in the intro as well as like another uh moment right like another moment that like popped up on the little string of images that uh made this story come together for him is when she hugs him and he's going to go to the cell where Linoge is kept and she like whispers in his ear, make him have an accident. Because mm -hmm. by this point, people in the town are like, listen, we can just kill this guy. We could just like, he's causing so many problems. We could just kill him and no one would ever know. 
And Mike is like, no, 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 no. But then his wife is like, make him have an accident. And uh, that shocks him. And then later at the end, when Linoge lays out his entire deal, which is you're going to draw lots to see which of your children is going to come with me. Uh, you all have to agree to do this. And Mike is like, well, absolutely, we will not agree to do this, even though everyone else in town is on board. And then it's his wife who is like, nope, we're island folks. And so we're going to be a part of this. And then, you know, surprise, I don't think we've said this. It's their kid that gets picked. And it's sort of implied that, you know, Linoge knew this all along, that this was all specifically like Linoge wanted their kid. Yep. You got to manufacture a little game to steal your little fairy child. Mm hmm. Yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that's what's, that's what's disappointing there is that that character just exists. And then the, you know, end is her talking with her therapist about <laughs> what a, what a horrible disappointment she's been to her husband and how like their marriage is on the rocks. Right. Uh, like I never thought wizards would steal my son says woman who voted for wizards stealing people's children party. <laughs> Statistically, it can't be mine. <laughs> uh, yeah, yes. Well, can we, okay, look. First, third, introducing Andre Linoge. Uh-huh. Ain't he scary? Mm-hmm. Second, third, murders. Mm-hmm. Third, third, courtroom drama about can we sacrifice our kids yes to the wizard it's good yeah i think that's rad yeah no i mean if if everything had been uh like condensed down to just this right if you had, if it had been a true twilight zone episode where we kind of like started in uh media race right where everyone's already sheltered and like this deal gets offered and we could fill in maybe everything else uh, uh obliquely uh, I think this would be like a solid hour of television or hour and a half. Mm -hmm. Yes. The the uh, gosh, what, I'm, I'm trying to think of the, the name of the guy, um, the the mayor from Jaws, <laughs> Ronnie. Right. So like we get a uh, Robbie. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> Even the name Meister can't do it. Uh huh. That's how difficult it is. Um, but uh yeah, he kind of like takes over, which is cool, right? Mm -hmm. There's this kind of end run where he he's like, I don't know, like, we, and we need to like, because what they have to do is they have to run a town meeting, right? Mm -hmm. And so like, Steve is able to get into these things of like, well, there's allegiances that go on in these small towns on these islands. And uh, we, uh, you know, like the, the person who can wield that power ends up having more power than the rational person. Like, I, I'm going to say it out front, right? Don't negotiate with a wizard. <laughs> never. Right? You, you never get out in front and be like, how can we appease the wizard? You've already gone down the wrong path. If you want, they're never happy. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, we, uh, you know, the, the, we, anyway, we get that. We get a town vote and the town votes because they all have to agree. That's like part, it's not the rules necessarily, but that's implied, right? But yeah, then they vote. They're, they're like, all right. Also in the middle here, uh, Linoge makes all the, the kids go to sleep. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. I cannot. 
uh, I cannot believe that we've gone this long without mentioning the one of the other critical facts of this entire story, which is Andre Linoge's magic cane. Yeah, talk about it. Well, it is simultaneously extremely cool and extremely stupid. Because on the one hand, it's like, all right, like he's a wizard, like, or well, it start. I guess when he becomes a wizard, that's when it really kind of like locks into place. But before then, it's just uh, there's this guy with a magic cane and he keeps like he makes like when he has people mind controlled to write his little messages, they always draw the cane around it. And it's like, what is going on here? This is so bizarre. So it feels really odd and corny, but then also it kind of works. But then also we get that scene where he makes all the kids fall asleep. And then we see the fantasy land that the kids are in, which is that they're just flying through the sky with him. And then like the cane is flying ahead of them and it's like leading them on. And it's bizarre. I like when you touch the cane, it just teleports you to hell world, (laughs) which is implied to be the future. Yeah. Yeah, you get teleported to like a pocket plane where Andre Linoge is like flying you through the sky. Right. And you're having a grand old time. And that's where all the kids are. They all touch the cane and they go Betty by. Mm hmm. Which actually. So he murders that old woman at the beginning with the cane. Yeah. Do you think her consciousness teleported to Kane world as she was being bludgeoned about the head? Yeah, you know what? Sure. Okay, interesting. <laughs> uh, but uh, the, uh, yeah, so like these kids are flying and the idea is like, if you don't choose one kid to give me, I'm going to kill all the kids. And then you'll all get Croatoan'd. Uh-huh. You want to talk about that? How Croatan? Yeah, Croatan. What's going on, Steve? What's going on here? I remember uh, first watching this when I was younger and being confused by this for reasons that I'll get to. So, uh, at in, the other thing that happens in the midpoint is everyone gets a um, uh, like dream vision from Linoge where they see like a news report of uh, the town after the storm is over. And it turns out everyone in town has disappeared. Where did ever where did the population of Little Tall Island go? The only thing like it in American history was the disappearance of the colony at Roanoke. And so then we get that whole story, right? And if you're not familiar with the, the colony of Roanoke, it was, uh, I think, the first, if not one of the first attempts to set up um, a permanent colony by uh, the British in uh, uh what was going to become the United States uh, and uh, various problems interceded. Eventually, once the person who established that colony managed to get back to it, everyone was gone. Uh, The only sign of where they might have gone was a word carved into a tree or onto a stockade or something, which was the word Croatoan, which we are told here in this was a mysterious word and no one knows what it means. Ooh, spooky. This was confusing for me because, of course, I was the sort of kid who was reading a lot of like, uh, you know, Fortiana and like bizarre occurrences from American history that may or may not be true, some of which are. So I like I had read about Roanoke many, many times and uh, basically everything that I read was like and they wrote the word Croatoan, which was the name of a neighboring island implying that they went there. Is that true? Well, uh, I mean, so that's like one of the assumptions. But then when they went to the island, they couldn't find the colonists. But, Mm. uh, 
you know, the I think generally it's probably understood that uh, they the ones who did not die probably integrated with the native population. And there you have it. Um, huh. But it, I just remember watching this when I was a kid and being and when it's presented as like no one knows what Croatoan means. And I'm like, we know what that means. Like, it's it's very well established what that means. <laughs> Do we have a page where this appears? It's at the very end of part two, right? Yeah, I think so. Or the very beginning of part three. It's something. All right, X7. Hold on, I'm getting in here. No, maybe not. I can't find it. For some reason, I think it's spelled wrong here. Hold on, let's see. Yeah, this is how the, this is 229. This is how the village of Roanoke, Virginia looked in 1587 before everyone disappeared. Every man, woman, and child, their fate has never been discovered. A single possible clue was discovered. A word found carved on a tree. Uh, carved into the bark is the word Croatoan. Uh, this, but, but it's not. It's C-R-O-A-T-O-N. Oh, yeah. Croatoan. That's right. That's not even the word, right? No, it's not. It's Croatoan. Yeah. Yeah. So it is misspelled. C-R-O-A-T-O-A-N is the way it is spelled like historically. And you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Like what is the name of a nearby island? Yeah. And so, yeah, Croatan, the name of a place, a misspelling, a word written in a language lost over the centuries. No one knows that either. Well, maybe that's how Stephen King like threads the needle here. Croatan is not a word anyone ever wrote because it's not a real word. Right. He got your ass, Michael Lutz. How about that? Oh, no. Take that. But that's the weird part to me. When I was reading it, I was like, that's not the word that was there. Why would you change that? <laughs> Bizarre. Well, I think that, so it's two things, right? One, it's like, who cares? Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, that's like fair and it doesn't matter. Uh, the other one is like, does this speak to what this work is? Which is like the genius Stephen King coming down from on high to deliver yet another very popular made for television, you know, multi night event of which he'd done several at this point. Mm-hmm. And you take what you get and you don't ask questions about it, including a misspelling, a, a basic historical error, <laughs> like one that anyone who cares about this will notice. Right. And the fact that it is so ingrained in you what the right one is, you didn't even read the word. Right. You're like, of course, it's Croatoan. That's the one we all know if we right. care about this thing. It's not <laughs> Croatoan. <laughs> oh god so yeah i just uh, i uh, to me that's where i hit this and i was like this might explain a lot of what's going on here in this book i'm not enjoying reading mm-hmm. uh yeah i don't actually this is the you know i said there was a rotten heart at the the thing it was the you know uh, sock feet yeah. up on the thing <laughs> no it's the misspelling of croato yeah <laughs> so we get that combined with uh well, actually, where what was the track that brought us here? Did you have something else you wanted to say? Because this reminded me of like the other like bizarre enjambment that happens on like the exposition. So obviously, clearly, uh, what's being mm-hmm. set up here is that uh, Lenoge might have had something to do with Roanoke, and he claims as much at the end, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but then the other thing that we learn about Lenoge when. Uh, Mike is he's gone back to his house to get some like games from the daycare for the kids. And he's like playing with the kids blocks because he spells out Lenoge's name and he's like, wait a minute. And he realizes if you rearrange the letters in Lenoge, you get the word Legion, just like the name offered by the multitude of demons possessing the man in the Bible. There is nothing I love more than this moment. <laughs> It's so objectively silly. Uh-huh. 
but I think it's like it's like wonderful in the way it works, right? Because he's just looking at blocks and the blocks, because in all of these situations where Linoj is doing like TK stuff, right? Mm-hmm. His name gets spelled out. You know, it like shows up in the crossword puzzle on the yeah. computer, all this stuff, right? And it's in the blocks and he's like, wait a minute. Let me move these things around. Oh my God, it's Legion. I can't believe it. I uh, it's it's such a silly thing. Uh, but I think it like actually does work. I think it's a fun and yeah, then they, then he starts quoting the Bible all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, he quotes it at the beginning, right? Uh, in, when everyone's like sort of flipping out in the market before uh, the murders have started. It's everyone's just like doing storm prepping. There's like a brief scene where he quotes the Bible at the preacher uh, to mm-hmm. like tell him off. But uh, yeah, so that, that's a, a little character note. So we know later or so we're not surprised later when uh, Mike can just drop the whole little Bible story for us. Uh, the important thing there that also sort of doesn't make sense. Uh, but like I, I can kind of see where all these pieces are coming from in the Bible. Jesus uh, casts the the spirits out of the possessed man and puts them into a herd of pigs, which then run themselves into the ocean and drown mm-hmm. uh, during the Croaton uh, vision. One of the mm-hmm. things that everyone learns is that or like what what Leno shows them is a vision of everyone lining up single file, everyone on the island uh, and walking into the ocean. And they're all saying, we're sorry, we didn't listen to you, Mr. Linoge. And then just, you know, dropping one after the other. The implication being that Linoge came to Roanoke, did basically this same thing. And then as the ending kind of suggests, uh, the people of Roanoke did not accept his deal. And in retribution, he had them all walk into the ocean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is like, OK, like that's that's kind of neat, but it's also like so many disparate, bizarre threads being brought together. Right. Like the the weirdness of the Roanoke situation, plus this old, old, old Bible story. But uh, I, I don't quite know what to do with that. I, I guess uh, this just might be like a personal opinion thing, but there's something like I would have smoothed that down a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, there's not a lot to do with it other than say, that's neat. That's a fun thing. And it like kind of gives the they it gives King an excuse to start quoting the Bible all the time Mm -hmm. uh, into into, like read scripture against scripture. I know it's a thing you like. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, where he like gets in that fight with the priest. Yes. Over is it okay to do it or not? Right. It gives us kind of a little bit of a moral backing Mm -hmm. Um, and also implies that uh, Jesus had a fight with a wizard. Yeah. Well, that's actually kind of the question that I come away with is like, okay, so if Linoja's legion, does that mean that he that he was literally that unclean spirit got cast into the pigs and then ran into the ocean? Is Hmm. like, is this all retribution for being made to go into the ocean by God? Like, what the hell's up with that? Can I flip you a different one, a much more disturbing reading of this? Uh, Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. They got it wrong. Mm hmm. Okay. Yeah. It Jesus didn't do that to those pigs. Andre Linoge did that to those pigs. Right. Right. There's a little bit of there's a little bit of deep history miscommunication going on here, right? When the pigs got sent to the ocean, Andre Linoge was putting them there. Yeah. And Jesus was being like, that's Legion over there. Don't mess <laughs> with him. He he sends stuff into the ocean. That's his okay. whole deal. What if Hey, do you think he's from Atlantis? Well, I was gonna say, what if uh 
uh, Jesus is a historical distortion of Linoge. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, That's right? what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. What if, uh, but yeah, do you think he's from Atlantis because he's sending all these people to the ocean? Yeah, I mean, sure. Like, I mean, that's, that, that's there's a way in which uh, I'm very on board with that because that's kind of like a, a Clark Ashton Smith kind of wizard, yes. right? Yeah. Like the, the type of wizard who would have been fighting Conan at some point. Yeah, that's what, exactly. I was going to say this is a real Robert E. Howard idea. You right. Know what I mean, that like Atlantis sank and there's a bunch of wizards running around and they're the ones who sank it. Yes. And they're responsible and we need, we need people to help do it. This would be a better story. This would be a better story if the coda was uh, this dude hunting Andre Linoge down, <laughs> becoming a wizard to fight a wizard. Yes. I don't know. Like, I just, oh my God, that ending monologue would be so funny. <laughs> yes, because this ends with like a really weird epilogue. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, I think a lot, I thought a lot about, uh, you know, an adaptation. Uh, you've seen the film adaptation. Mm-hmm. Okay, so in adaptation, there's the Robert McKee seminar he goes to. Yes. And and there's the really funny joke in the screenplay that, like, it, you know, it's also in the, the movie. Or, you know, it, it, it's a screenplay joke in the movie. But the uh, where he's doing, like, an internal monologue that is being presented in voiceover. And Robert McKee uh, interrupts by saying, and God help you if you use voiceover. Yes. And that's how I felt about the beginning and end of this thing. I was like, God help you. <laughs> uh, that's such a good part. If people have not seen Adaptation, it's a hard watch. It's a little long. It's, uh, uh, you know, a little, uh, it gets trite, I would say, at some points. I don't know if it's my 100 favorite film of all time. But when that movie is hidden, it's hidden. It's, it's, it's good. Yeah, it's really good. I like that movie a lot. Probably uh, Nicolas Cage's best performance, too, because he has to play two twin brothers. Yes. Have you seen the maybe the GQ interview, you know, like where, where GQ does those things where they, they like talk to celebrities about their major roles or whatever? Mm-hmm. Uh, have you seen the Nicolas Cage one where he's like clearly upset he did was not nominated for an Oscar for that film? I don't think I have seen that, no. He's like, and I had to do both parts, so I don't understand why they didn't appreciate that, why the Academy didn't appreciate that. It's very funny. And he does a really good job playing those brothers very, very differently. Oh, yeah. If you were to ask me, like, raw raw output, what is his, like, A number one, like, not just big Nicolas Cage performance, the kind of uh, Hirakiri acting that he has leaned into, you know, the Hirakiri method that he has both talked about but also disavowed <laughs> Yeah, that he's doing. You know, the big Nicolas Cage self-parody stuff, right? Just raw, like, where was he doing good work? That's that's at the very top by a long, by a long margin. Mm-hmm. Um, and then maybe Wild at Heart somewhere in there. Yeah. But only the Wild at Heart stuff where he has the fake nose at the end that looks so bad. <laughs> but uh I, why did we start talking i'm sorry i got us like way off here uh voiceover uh, the voiceover voiceover in the, in the so yeah we get thank you <laughs> so they uh Linoge, as an evil old wizard does this uh the lottery mm-hmm. picks picks ralphie the kid and molly his wife is like gotta let him go you know gotta mm-hmm. do it she's upset about it but she's like, here's the deal. And then she's like, we'll tell ourselves that he drowned or whatever, right? She's like, mm-hmm. we'll make some shit up and just start believing it. Even though a wizard, it. we'll forget. <laughs> Stephen King uses that quite a lot. Like, we'll just pretend it didn't happen. Yeah. 
interesting maneuver. Oh, also, we'll talk about this when we get there, but the uh, what were you doing when your mom died thing gets reused in Dreamcatcher, too, in a really interesting way. Oh. Uh, not interesting way. Let me revise. <laughs> Fatphobic way. <laughs> in horrifyingly uh, shithead-like way. Okay. Uh, but in, in that container, fascinating to see him go back to this well, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. Then, uh, and then Mike's like, he just can't handle it. Mm -hmm. You know, we get a little coda that's like, I'm not going to pretend that Ralphie died in the storm. And then he just leaves. He like gets in his Bronco or whatever. Yeah. And drives across country. You would think he'd drive to like the Great Plains to where he'd never have to see water again. Nope. He wants to see a different ocean. (laughs) He drives across the country. He abandons everyone in his life. Mm -hmm. Gets divorced. Uh, he, he gets a degree in criminal justice and then a degree in accountancy and becomes a U.S. Marshal. Yeah. In San Francisco. In San Francisco in about three sentences, he does this. And then he gives us a little rundown on all the other parents, basically. And like half of them died. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, they self annihilate because they can't handle what they've done. Mm hmm. So yeah, we didn't even talk about the the guy who's like one trait is uh, hate crime. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that we could we could do this for like hours probably for zero actual meaningful content because there's right. a whole host of characters in this story who are either there to be potential victims for Linoge and like that is their defining quality. Like, oh yeah, that's the woman who gets, or maybe it's a guy who gets left outside and freezes to death or uh, yeah, it's a guy. Yeah. It's, uh, and then, or the uh, people who are only there for Linoge to reveal a secret about them. And then that defines their character. So he like looks at this guy and he's like, ah, ha, ha, remember that hate crime you did? Uh, and that's that guy from that point forward, right? We know nothing mm-hmm. about him before then, or rather we do, right? We see him like with his wife and kid, but oh, wow, you have a wife and kid on this island? So does everyone. Uh, and just like his definitive thing is he is the one who did the hate crime. They like beat up a uh, gay man uh, and like really, really injured him. And, and that blind him. Yeah. In one eye. Yep. Uh and, and like Linoj does this thing. It's very 90s of like, but really, you were sexually attracted to him. Yeah. And we all we all watch CBS and like cover our mouths a little bit. Oh, my word. Mm-hmm. Uh, psychosexual uh, thrills and chills. Right. Ooh, thanks, Steve. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, the, yeah, we get the we main get ones are also very 90s, too. Right. Where it's like that marijuana you're running out of your business secretly or that abortion you had. Yes, or that girl you slept with. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, they're, they're they're all very yeah. They're just like basic. Oh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just want to mention, it's like to to give you like the calibration here, right? To tell you just how good Mike is when Linoj does this to Mike. <laughs> like, the thi- I forgot. I forgot about <laughs> he and he treats it. <laughs> he treats it just as mu- like just as sort of like portentously as he does everyone else's, right? All that yes. stuff that I just mentioned. He treats it just as portentously, but he's like, "That's right, Mike. Remember that time when you were in college and you cheated on a final exam in your psychology course." it's so funny (laughs) it's such a but it's treated the same as like you've broken the basic social codes of this island right you cheated on an exam one time which hey don't cheat on exams if you cheat on exams i'll be disappointed in you Mm -hmm. but i promise you i'll never send a wizard to steal your kid right 
it's just such a it's in such a different level than everyone else's stuff, which is like these like horrible, horrible, like disappointments or shameful secrets. Right. Like, oh, I, I you know, burned down someone's mill right after they fired. Yeah. Me, right. One guy got fired and burned down the mill. <laughs> That's bad. <laughs> it's like you cheated on a college final. Mike yeah, Anderson. Yeah. yeah, it's just not. I mean, what's that final 100 percent of your grade? That's not even going <laughs> to determine if you pass or fail the course more than likely. <laughs> but uh, the yeah, they, they're all treated. And that's part of it, right? That's like good old Steve going for the both all of these things, right? It's like it's just dance macabre Steve. You know, it is interesting. Occasionally it will be like we will get feedback still. That's like Stephen King wrote this book in like 1979. Why do you keep bringing it up? Well, it's because the bare bones, like the skeleton that he identifies for horror fiction in that book, he's still using it Mm -hmm. in the year 1999. Uh, Like, you know, for him, uh, you know, when he says like horror is a conservative genre, it's he doesn't just mean like horror is for conservatives, right? Like Mm -hmm. that's not it's not the thing there, right? Like when he says horror is a conservative genre, he means that you can trigger people's like, oh, my, oh, my God, by like. Uh, uh, messing with the fundamental social forces that they believe in. Right. And so it's conservative in the sense that our reflex there, or like in his mind, our reflex when we read horror is when we see those social mechanisms violated, we react in a really negative way. Right. And so like the, that, that, that basic bare bones, that theory is also what makes the 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 cheating test not work, right? Because like I don't think we think that like violates the basic uh, '90s aesthetic in the way that like uh, committing hate crimes. You know, ho- mm-hmm. hopefully we think that committing hate crimes does violate you know the basic bones of our uh, social thing. That's my desire, right? And burning down the mill, we think that's bad. And like in Middle America. In the 90s and probably in middle America now, in Stephen King's mind, abortions do the same thing. And cheating on your spouse does the same thing, right? These are Mm -hmm. all, like, violations. And so, yeah, he's still, like, you know, using this little, like, weed eater engine of of horror theory. uh, And, you know, just, like, burning shit down here Mm -hmm. in 1999 with it. Um, You know, hitting all the high spots. Um, So I guess it works. I don't know. But uh, my my wife did see. I do see you. I see you have it here on the... uh, the note uh, in our Kingiverse stuff, but I am going to jump forward here because when we were watching Storm of the Century TV program, uh, my wife, my very brave wife, was uh, watching it with me and said, when Derry came up, she said, because it's like, you got an abortion in Derry. You know, Lenoge says that. My wife immediately said, oh, because it lives there. The only thing she knows about Stephen King is like what she sees in the TV shows, you know what I mean? Uh-huh. Or the movies, right? That's it. She doesn't read any of these books or whatever. And even she keyed into that immediately, right? Like right. for for a non-fan, someone who is deeply uninvested in these things, even she pulled that. So right. uh, that's a real King King pulling on the pulling on the, the strings here. Yeah, I think the abortion thing is so interesting because uh, you know, it's presented as like, oh my gosh, like what this like young woman in town did. And at the same time, it does like lay out her case pretty well where she goes to the boyfriend. And it turns yeah. out that the reason she did that is because 
he was already cheating on her and she knew about it. Like that was not yeah. when, when Linoge reveals that to the town that he was cheating on her, we're allowed to believe that she just found that out. But she, it turns out she already knew. And that's why she got the abortion because she realized she's pregnant by a guy that she can't trust. Right. Uh, and then I don't know what we do with the fact that ultimately he's strong enough to resist Linoge. The one person in town, except for Mike, apparently, uh, strong enough mm-hmm. to re- resist Linoge. And then immediately, uh, she is manipulated into murder him but oh I, I i mean i think what we make of it i don't think it like it, this does the the calculations don't clear here you know what mm-hmm. i mean like we don't get a good answer but i think what we're meant to take from that and i think this comes from seeing it go to patreon.com slash range touch in order to uh see us um or listen to us i hope you don't see us listen to us uh talk about this people are using their synesthesia <laughs> to imagine <laughs> mm. <laughs> his voice is blue uh-huh since he's just cool, I went to college with a guy who who uh, really uh, was uh, had had strong synesthesia, and he had he had really interesting descriptions about that stuff. Hmm. But he, he would like talk through it, and it was yeah. uh, fascinating. Uh, and it was like auditory and taste, taste like really oh. did it for him. But uh, the uh, but I think what we're meant to take from it is that he misunderstands her, right? He thinks, oh, we're in a relationship, and you got an abortion. That you're evil and bad. And she looks at him and sees him sleeping around and is like, you are, you don't care about me. I think what we're supposed to take from the him resisting Linoge thing is that she misunderstands him as well. He does, in his heart, love her, mm-hmm. right? His actions maybe don't own up to that, but that is true. He does, in fact, love. And he lo- actually cares for her so much that he can resist an evil wizard. Right. I think that's how it's supposed to play. Right, right, right. Um, I, I like and like you said, like that's not ever rendered out anywhere in a way that is legible. And ultimately, he's murdered immediately afterwards, so it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. But but he, you know, there's a, there's a little gift of the magi here, right? Like they they have east they've each misapprehended the other in right. a way that is that produces a bad end for them because she ultimately kills him. Which maybe in this calculation implies she doesn't love him enough, right? Maybe yeah. she's already broken with him because you know he she realizes that that he uh cheating on her i don't know like it doesn't all come out in the end but i think that's the 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 trade there Mm -hmm. um and i don't know i don't know if it works it's that's the most charitable read here's the uncharitable read it makes for good suspense yep and it's just like going for the thriller you think she's she's gonna get brained with a big apple juice can and uh I don't know if you noticed that in the thing that yes. it's an apple juice yes. container, <laughs> uh, which is a very specific thing to choose here. But well, you know, you you think the man's going to murder the woman, but what if a woman could murder a man? Yeah, I, the murderer oh, was a woman. Oh my god! Yeah, it's like yeah. kind of a reversal there. And yes, I did notice that it's an apple juice can because this is another note about King's screenplay. It is incredibly detailed about scenes <laughs> yeah. and props in ways that are. I mean, sure, you can write a screenplay this way, but typically, if you're not Stephen King, you're not doing as much uh, direction in the screenplay as he is doing uh, because that's someone else's job. You're just like sketching out who people are and what they're saying to each other and where they're going. And you might focus on like a couple of important props. Mm -hmm. Uh, But Steve gets really into the weeds on like the different labels and how they're designed and they just show up for this scene. Yeah, there's a, you know, he, 
we've read a lot of screenplays, both for this show. We haven't read one in a while. We should probably we should probably dig a couple more up and and do a little bit of that work for maybe when we do Desperation, which will be at some mm-hmm. point in the next year. We gotta go yeah. back and do a few we missed. Due to the AMPGP finally having to back down because labor controls the product. But, uh, you know, I think what what we, so we've read some older screenplays, you know, we've read screenplays from the 70s and 80s and 90s on here. And we've, of course, read you and I, independent of this, have read contemporary screenplays for various reasons. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously screenplays have changed in how they're written over the years. They they now are as much a pitch document as they are anything else. Right. Like there's right. a there's a formula for how you do a screenplay. Um, and what kind of beats you're supposed to hit in particular times. And in the past, that wasn't necessarily the case. But but yeah, you're right. There, there's a way that Stephen King in the novel for television is doing a lot of direction, and he's doing a lot of uh, production design uh, in a way that that uh, actively impedes the production of the thing because I, they do a really good job. The people who are making this replicate a lot of what is in this novel for television, the screenplay. Um, but also I, like I said earlier, Stephen King does not have a grasp or an in maybe uncharitably does not have a grasp charitably has no interest in product is the same. He doesn't care about editing at all. Uh, this, this book or the screenplay functions like a novel does. We change scenes when it is interesting to go and see what other people are doing. We do not change scenes for pacing reasons. We don't change scenes in order to like parallel edit stuff together, uh, even though that does come up in maybe some of the thriller pieces, but none of the conversations or none of the developments. It's like, what is Mike doing during this thing? There's a commercial break. Now we're finding out what his wife's doing in this thing. Now there's a commercial break. Now we're going to find out what they're doing together in this thing, right? Like it's very, very paid. It, it, it is paced in the way that you would pace a book, not in the way that that screenplays are normally paced. Um, and, and like you're saying too, another kind of break from it, from either post, you know, 2000 screenplay stuff, even though this is written a little bit earlier or even 80s stuff is that screenplays often tell you what an audience is supposed to feel about a thing. Mm-hmm. You know, how are they supposed to take what this character's doing? Right. Like close up on so-and-so's face. We feel intense sympathy. Yes. Right. right. Uh, or or uh, or describing something right that like an action and not getting into the blow by blow of it right like uh, John McClane swings on a rope into the the terrorist you right. know what I mean we know you know that it is it is evocative some the director and the stunt coordinators will figure that out right production designers set designers they'll all work on that together that's not for the screenplay to really figure out unless it's like part of a complicated scene right. Mm-hmm. Uh, in screenplays in the 80s, and maybe still now, I don't know, but you just see things like they fight. Uh-huh. Yes. <laughs> right? So that's someone else's job. That's not for the screenplay to like figure out, right? They fight is enough to to do that, right? Or they like have a brutal fight. They each punch each other in the face, right? And like in the movie, that's gonna play differently because it's gonna depend on who's doing it and how they're doing it, how they want to make it look, all that kind of stuff, right? In here, every action is like beat by beat described and then is translated to the screen. Right. Um, and so I'm not saying this to like just to belabor the point or whatever, but to say like this, this is a different kind of thing than other things of its nature. And that, that I think that does change the way it looks visually when we see it in the bonus code, patreon.com slash range touch and the way we read it. It doesn't read like a screenplay at all. Mm-hmm. 
Um, oh, did we even like? So we talked about the ending. Uh, his we didn't get to epilogue. the very, very ending. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. When he so he's in San Francisco, he's eating some food or whatever. He's got some groceries. He's going into CVS. I can't remember exactly. Yeah, he is. He's like coming out of a like a pharmacy or something. Yeah, and the movie gets changed to a Chinese restaurant. Yeah. But uh, what happens there, Michael? Well, as he's walking, he is passed by two figures, a stately older man in a long coat and a young man in a letter jacket. And he hears them humming a little song together. And that song is I'm a little teapot. The scariest song known to humankind. We didn't talk about that. (laughs) Um, Constantly the refrain. Actually, it's not even constantly. It's about at the beginning of the second episode. It just feels so unedited. Like mm-hmm. there are things that become so important that are not introduced until fairly late that that are treated as if they were there the whole time. Mm-hmm. But I'm a little teapot is like a song that Lenoge is like humming to himself while he's doing evil murders. Mm-hmm. When he starts like mind controlling the children, they start singing. I'm a little teapot. Yeah. Well, it's all kind of implied that the the old lady that he murders at the beginning, he walks into her sitting room after he kills her and she has a teapot sitting out and that's when right. he starts humming it. So it's like he just is like he's like, this is my motif for this now. I guess. I'm, yeah, I, that's you're right. It, it is introduced right at the very beginning and just kind of forgotten about for the rest of that first episode. Yeah. So so maybe I'm being uncharitable here. Um, it's still goofy as hell. It's goofy. It just, it doesn't. Why is an ancient wizard singing this? Like, give him like an evil song. <laughs> you know? Well, he gets to say all the like, you know, portentous, like, uh, biblical shit where he's like, born in lust, turn to dust, born in sin, come on in. I'm a little teapot, short and stat. Like, uh. but so, stately older man, uh, uh, a boy, a teen boy walking by both humming this this horrible horrible song and he turns around mike does and he's like ralphie ralphie's his kid's name i don't think we've said that uh and the kid turns around both of them turn around and we recognize that even though the the guy looks different it's definitely linoge because the other thing that happens is linoge gets to do some shape changing stuff like not just from how he looks normally to uh uh, wizard, but when uh, there's like a scene where like a preacher is on TV and that's also Linoge in different makeup. Um, and then there's actually a couple of like shape changes that are in the screenplay that are cut out of the main episode, which I mm-hmm. guess we'll talk or yeah, that are cut out of the uh, actual filming thing. And we'll talk about that on the bonus episode. Um, but he calls out to them. Uh, the kid turns around and we know it's Ralphie because he's got the little birthmark on his nose, the fairy saddle. That's the uh, thing that Linoge seems to have already locked onto the first time he sees the kid way back when. And the kid opens his mouth and hisses at him like a snake, complete with Linoge snake teeth. And then they walk off back into the crowd. It's a sad one. Like, like it, maybe the whole thing is worth sitting through for this. It's it's a uh, very downer ending for like primetime television, primetime network television, right? Yeah, your uh, your kids will abandon you. I mean, I it's it's go it's it is the dance macabre again, right? It's the most conservative imaginary that you could ever twing on, right? Your children will be different from you. <laughs> 
because that's what it is. That is Wizards the fundamental of TikTok fear. <laughs> targeting harassment at all the all the authority figures in your child's life who right. are encouraging them to be evil wizards. Yeah, right. I mean, that is the real look in yes. my big uh, my big hierarchy of things I'm concerned about. There's nothing else on the top ten list from conservatives that I'm worried about. Right. I'm not worried about information about gender. I'm not worried about like increased diversification. I'm not, you know, that's all bad. Wizards, though, I'm worried about them too. Look, I can go across the aisle. I'm worried about an evil wizard as much as the next guy. <laughs> who 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 would who isn't worried about evil wizards? Yeah. Right. If you're not worried about this is my like uh Alex Jones, like, you know, direct to the camera. If you're not worried about evil wizards in 2024, you're doing yourself a disservice. <laughs> They're militating. Yeah. They've got compounds. They can fly. They have weirding stones that are older than Atlantis. <laughs> that's actually close. That's yes, like, no, that, 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 that's, that fits that's right weird. in. <laughs> They've got children up in the sky, and if they fall, if you die in the in the wizard's dream, you die in real life. That's that's 2024. You're living in the past if you're not concerned about a wizard's staff making your kids go to sleep all weird. <laughs> the reality of the world is the wizard's staff. I looked at a wizard staff one time in 1985, and you know what I saw? It winked. It winked at me. And I've been talking about wizards the whole time since then. This could be our new thing. We, we could be we could be like wizard panic TikTok guys. Yeah, I was just thinking this would be a very good bit to like put together for our TikTok. You should do it. Hey, yeah, we're at Range Touch is on TikTok. At Range Touch, we're over on TikTok now. We make a we make a TikTok every now and again. That's for funsies. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, yeah, that would be a good thing to do. Mm-hmm. Actually, we could just cut this, put it on there. <laughs> uh, I'll do that. <laughs> but uh, the uh, yeah, I don't. I forgot what we're talking. Anyway, but yeah, so I, it is fundamentally, I think, uh, like the conservative horror here, right? In the same way that like abortion is treated as evil, like inherently evil here, right? Even mm-hmm. if there's a good reason for it, right? right. Like it's a sin. Satan's right. calling it out, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or, or uh, you know, um, uh, hate crimes, whatever, right? Like cheating on tests. Um, the, like the 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 twinge of downer ending horror here is that yeah, that your your children will not be a replication of you. Mm-hmm. Your children will be their own thing. And here, that's obviously like. It's a wizard's child. So that's yes. not really a, it's not really a concern for most people, but I do think, you know, that's that's like a real that fuels a lot of horrifying things that people do in the world and also horrifying things that people do to their own children is yeah. the concern that they will not be replicated in the world. Uh and uh and I think like he bangs that drum here right at the end, right? You know, hits that gong and then we we cut to VO. Here's a little step uh, you know, I, I rarely want to give Stephen King a tip, right? Because he doesn't need it. He's a genius. Like, you know, pound for pound, Uncle Steve is killing it across the 20th century and 21st. But I do want to, I want to give a little screenplay. I'm not even a screenplay writer, but I've read a lot. And I think that this is good advice I'm going to give to Stephen King and anyone else who wants to do it. 
Um, you should not repeat the final line twice. Yeah. It's odd. He's trying to do a kind of um, he's trying to do a little bit of seven here, right? This is kind of like the Morgan Freeman ending narration of seven. Sure. Right. Like it's a little bit. I think that's the tone that he's aiming for. Mm-hmm. Uh, but whereas what uh, hey, can, can I can I hit you with a, uh, like a one two here? Sure thing. Doesn't work in seven either. <laughs> Actively bad. OK. I mean, but OK, you, I'll, but, I'll let you go have ahead. That. I might disagree, but rather, I think people uh, look fondly on that ending. I'll, I'll put it this way. Here's why you sure. might want to replicate that ending or at least mimic it is because I think it does have an impact on people uh, because it is ultimate like one Morgan Freeman, like voice. Great, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then, yeah. two, it is a bit of clever writing. And that, I think, might be why you don't like it, because it is it's like it's cute, maybe that like yeah. Ernest Hemingway quote. Uh, but nevertheless, it, it works. Right. I think uh, for for the audience. And this isn't even cute. It's just like a sad repetition. I think it should. Uh, I, I just think about like the apex ending for a Stephen King film, which mm-hmm. is uh, the end of Stand By Me, right? Iconic. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, you ever have any friends like one blah blah blah, all that stuff. Yeah, and we get we get the we get the final line, and then we're we're done. So right. right? And I think that it's better. I think it, I, we'll talk about this in the bonus episode. But like what happens is we get the final line and we get this kind of swooping shot of the island and then we get it repeated. Right. And we get this like huge chunk of text. Right. Like in the book proper. And so it's to like make us not forget the final line too. It's it, to me, it's like not the problem that it's too cute, even though I don't I, I think maybe I don't like it like reflex wise. It is that it does not try it. It has to reiterate the final thing because there's so much image that is Uh done here. And it does not, it doesn't trust the images to do the work for us. Maybe that's a TV movie thing. But let me tell you what, it works in Stand By Me because we get the final line and then we get the out of the window shot of those two teenagers just whipping each other's asses with beach towels (laughs) (laughs) and just going at it in the thing. And then they all get in a car and they drive away, right? Yeah. Trust the image. Trust the image, Steve, please. I can I can take, I can hold on to in the daylight I know better. We see the weeping images of all these people, and then we see the island. I can hold that word in my head for more than the 20 seconds it takes to see those images. Just let the, the movie do the work. Mm-hmm. That's what I don't like about it. Well, I just think it's kind of a limp ending. Yeah, sure, that ended with that kid killing his dad. <laughs> Can you imagine that kid just like tearing into him on the street in San Francisco? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the Ralphie goes full ball spawn, starts carving his dad up in the middle of the thing. Oh, I, I do have one. And then pull thing out. We see the storm clouds coming into San Francisco. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's going to do like the sequel storms of the century. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> there's like a tornado coming from the inland. And there's yeah. a, like a like a tsunami coming from the other side. Uh-huh. Uh huh. I, I one thing I really like about the ending. This is like this is the talent of Stephen King. Truly, this I'm not saying that as a joke. This is real. The one of the uh, the moms going out on a little dinghy. Oh yeah, and she that you know the the implication is that she drowns, but we don't know. Right, she's just because gone. she 
She's just gone. Like her, her rain slicker's gone. She's disappeared and Croaton is written on the boat. Yep. That's fun. I like that a lot. Did she go to the wizard's dimension? Did she go <laughs> chase after, you know, the wizard to punish him? Right. You know, wearing the Punisher skull t-shirt? <laughs> M16? Why That's also in Vietnam? the sequel. <laughs> she shows up and she's become like a Ripley-like badass. <laughs> <laughs> she's been trained. Oh, it's her and the kid. She's been training the kid. To go back and rescue Ralphie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they go, they recruit a different wizard too. Yes. He's from an alternate timeline. Uh-huh. Anyway. There's a lot of fun ideas here. This is ultimately a very bad book. I would suggest skipping it. Yep. I don't think anyone needs to read this. Yep. Yep. If you want I think if to, you want to know about yeah. it, just watch the thing. Yeah. It's going to be a lot better for you. Yeah. I didn't hate watching it. We'll talk about that. Patreon.com slash range touch. Where you can get uh, all the info. Do you want to you wanna take us into some segments? Sure thing. Uh, my Favorite Kingism is our first segment. This is the part of the show where we each pick out something in what we just read that uh, is indelibly kingy. Something representative of his prose style, his strengths, sometimes his uh, weirdnesses, his idiosyncrasies. Uh, whatever. Just something that when we read it, it's like, yeah, Stephen King wrote that. Um Mine for this episode is uh, Mike's story about Job, which is, I think, uh, in some ways, a thesis statement for the entire story, but also maybe not one that exactly pans out or anything. Uh, this is after yeah. after they go to the daycare and he rearranges the blocks and all that stuff. Uh, and he's like, oh, my God, like the biblical legion is here. Uh, they're driving back. He's with, I think, Hatch, who's his, like, you know, second in command or maybe some other guy. Um, mm-hmm. I think he's with Hatch, yeah. Yeah. And so Hatch is like, like, <laughs> because because Mike is the smart one, Hatch is like, why is this happening? What's going on? Like, you know stuff about the Bible. What's going on? Uh, and Mike says that uh, in, in the Bible, there's the story of Job, right, of a, a, a sort of contest between God and the devil about uh, whether or not Job would lose faith if God were to take away all of Job's blessings. And so bunches of terrible things happen to Job, but Job does not lose faith. And Mike says, well, there's a part of that story that wasn't written down in the Bible. And it's after it's all over. Um, Job goes to God and he says, why me? You know, of all these, like, I was always a good worshiper. I always, like, observed your strictures, whatever. But, like, why me? Of all people, why me? And God says to Job, I guess there's something about you that just pisses me off. And that's where we're left, right? Is I mean, this is also engaging, I think, with uh, uh, King's 90s turn toward Christianity, but in a slightly different way where we saw in desperation, right, that... Uh, uh, King has this fairly astringent Protestant line to him where God is just going to be an asshole to you, right? Like God yeah. is going to, God is going to put you in a situation and ask you to do something where there is not an optimal outcome. And that's just the way that it is. Uh, and here that is reformulated more explicitly kind of in terms of spite, because we don't even get the idea that like there is a God after this. It's just the only thing that Mike can come up with to explain it is, yeah, like there's a thing in charge of reality 
and we piss it off. Uh, yes, this is also, I had a different favorite King of Gotham, but I think this might be the best one. I think this is maybe some of the worst stuff that Stephen King has ever written. <laughs> I groaned out loud when I read it, mm-hmm. and I went, oh my God, when I saw it performed. <laughs> but you're right, it is so the heart of Steve right. in the 90s, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it, it, if, if you're asking me, like, what is... If I could pick w- one thing to maybe represent 90s Steve, this might be it. Yeah. Like, this is the 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 weird little, uh, you know, uh, goblin guy from Insomnia, right? Like, <laughs> contained in a story. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. I, I don't like it. I think it's really bad. <laughs> it, it is like, a, a, you know, a deflationary move as mm-hmm. the joke. Mm-hmm. Even if it is, it's not performed as a joke. No. It's performed as like something, like a, a closely held feeling that someone has about the biblical God. Mm-hmm. It, none of it makes sense. It, re, it rings so hollow. And yet, I think the idea being expressed, as you said, is just fundamental to where Steve, Stephen King is post-sobriety for sure. Right. So, uh, yeah, I think, I think that's right. I think that's a, that's a good one to go with. Yeah. What about yours? From my favorite Kingism? Mm-hmm. That's mine. I've changed. Oh, oh okay, you changed. I think you're right. You're not going to tell me, like, what the original one was? Oh, the original one was where, uh, for no reason whatsoever, uh, Linoge makes everything glow and float. <laughs> like fucking Poltergeist or something? Yeah, he. Yeah, in the, I mean, in the movie, it is filmed like Poltergeist, right? He, like, straight up does a Poltergeist. He's making everything float around. He uses all these, like, cool wizard's powers that don't come up before and never come up again after. Yep. <laughs> hey, why does it why did his eyes keep going like chromatic black? So, yeah, so why do Linoge's eyes change? Why can Linoge make things float and why doesn't he do this more often? Why does Robbie only get a shape-changing Linoge who specifically takes on the form of a person from his past? Uh, there all we could do this all day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, right? there's all these like one-off power. I'm not a like I need the rules. You know, I'm like adjusting my glasses that are broken in the middle here, right? I need my rules of the Mm -hmm. fiction to be coherent. Like, I'm not that, right? That's not the claim being made here. But like, he's got a bunch of cool powers and I I would like to see either fewer of them. uh, I I would like to see fewer powers and the powers he has used more often Mm -hmm. is what I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, And uh, just because like, they're all pretty neat, but they're all like a one-off and I, I would prefer to see more. Right. And also, I need to know, like, how many materia points he blew when he, like, did the floating thing. I need to know, like, is it a uh, is it like a free action to use the staff or is does he need to use some sort of like action point economy uh-huh. in order to deploy it? Right. Right. There, um, there need to be scenes where Linoge is like muttering cooldown barks underneath his breath where he's like, I can't use that yet. I can't use that yet. Not yet. Not right now. that's that would be extremely funny i would love to watch a movie or a television program where people are having to to do that i can't my powers i need time to recharge um i'm i'm recharging now i need to sit on my bed i need to sit on my bed it's like when you're trying to maneuver you're in an adventure game you're trying to get lanoche out of the 
uh, it, like out of the the uh, the police station, right? You like yes. can't figure out the locked door puzzle, and it's like uh, it, you know, eventually you click on enough things where he's like, "I need to sit on my bed. I need to sit on my bed." You and and you're like sit on the bed. He's like, "My feet feel weird. There's something with my feet." And you're like, "Oh, I forgot to take the shoes off." Mm-hmm. So like, get off the bed, remove the shoes, get back on the bed. Right, exactly. But you have to like find scissors to like my shoes are tied too tight. My shoes are tied too tight. I think I tied my shoes too tight this morning. This knot is really difficult. I can't believe this knot I made. <laughs> How'd I do that? Yeah. Uh, next segment. Uh, what in the Kingiverse? Uh, making connections between what we just read and the larger Stephen King universe, the the multiverse, the various connections between his stories. So uh, already mentioned that dairy comes up, and specifically dairy is a place where you go to uh, get an abortion. Uh, go check out our episode on insomnia if you want to hear more about Derry's abortion clinic. Uh, this story also takes place on Little Tall Island, which is the same location that Dolores Claiborne took place. And Dolores Claiborne is even mentioned in the screenplay twice. Once in the description dialogue, uh, it not d- description dialogue in the in the description right the part of the the part of the screenplay that the person who is watching the final product will never engage with we get some Dolores Claiborne exposition there uh, and then later on a character I think it's actually Robbie is like well island people know how to keep a secret like Dolores Claiborne and whatever she did with her husband during the eclipse right um but also draws conspicuous attention to the fact that Dolores Claiborne isn't here. And she yeah, should Dolores. be right because oh we didn't say this this takes place in like 1989 for some reason yeah well, I think so he could like end it in the present day because it's like we we get the grown up Robbie or grown up right, Ralphie right. right and it's like ten years later um, I think that's why that happens he doesn't want to jump past the year 2000 do you think it would be better if it was like uh, it, he he said it in 1999 and it had to be another ten years so it was like. <laughs> Uh, you know, 2009, and he was like, and as the flying car whizzed <laughs> yes. over my head, I looked to see my wizard child. Yes. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, and so as yeah. I had universal health care, I thought, it doesn't matter if I get hit by that flying car. <laughs> I sure hope the death panels don't get me. He, you know, yeah. Stephen King was in that. He was, he's a yeah. big Democratic donor. He knows. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, the wizard's going to implement death panels. <laughs> they're going to tell you if you can live or die. If they're going to cast dice and sand, they shall cast your reflection upon a multitude of mirrors, and they shall pick one of those reflections, which shall be your doom. In 1991, I was trapped in a series of mirrors, and a, a shirtless hunk had to smash them all till he could find me. Since that day, I've never trusted a wizard. Oh, my God. That's from Conan. If yeah. you've ever seen that movie, that's good. <laughs> yeah, it is good, good stuff. Uh, so just other Dolores Claiborne thoughts very briefly. The other interesting thing about this is that um, almost none of the names cross over because I was curious about this is like our so mm-hmm. like even though this is Little Taught Island and Dolores is mentioned, there is some reason for her not being there because it's mentioned very briefly that some portion of the island's population uh, when they knew that the storm was coming, they're like, well, you know, screw this. I'm going to the mainland. Um, uh, and that's also conveniently, this is a funny thing that actually gets cut out of uh, 
the the television production, there's an explanation for where all the older children are because on the island, as the screenplay gives it to us, there are like seven or eight children younger than like nine. Uh, and then there's one maybe like 14 year old boy and that's it. And uh, it's mentioned in the screenplay that the he the boy was staying home sick, the older boy and all the older kids were basically on uh, on the mainland at school and they got stuck there. Um, mm hmm. So like maybe that's where Dolores is. But I also just went through uh, uh, Dolores Claiborne and I was just kind of like, you know, comparing the various family names that show up here. And none of them are really crossovers. There's like one mention of an Anderson and Dolores Claiborne. Uh, but there are a couple names like Robichaud is a name that shows up here. But in Dolores Claiborne, it's Robichaud, uh, hmm. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like there, there are another couple, level yeah. of the tower. Whoa. Yeah. Wah. So that's that. Um, and then I said an evil aged wizard is part of the Kingiverse because I remember during my listserv days, there was debate about whether or not Linoge was some version of Randall Flagg or whatever. I uh, I don't think so. No, I don't think so either. Like even a little bit. Like at the most, the, the version he is closest to is the one who shows up in Eyes of the Dragon. And he is so clearly mm -hmm. not the flag from Eyes of the Dragon. Yeah, I mean, just like flag isn't written this way, you right. know, he's not he's going to tell you what he's up to immediately or he'll never tell you what he's up to. Right. I don't think that Randall Flagg can work in Stephen like period. I don't think you could like represent accurately a form of Randall Flagg in the way that Stephen King writes screenplays. Yeah, because it's all internal monologue. Mm hmm. Flagg only works because we know like what's up or alternately you show him floating around. Mm hmm. But you got you have to like know a lot about him and what he's up to and what he's thinking, or you got to get like a Lloyd, you know what I mean? Right. Someone who's like reporting everything about him. Right. So he would have to recruit. I mean, that's another way going into the Stephen King like history, right? Another way of solving a lot of the issues here is to just give him a lackey. Yeah. Give him a Renfield. Mm -hmm. Who knew that the wizard was coming? Mm-hmm. Oh, that would have been who would nice. It be? That would have been interesting. It would be the French Canadian guy for sure. Yeah. Definitely. I know this, this wizard's coming. <laughs> I just I, do like a Southern guy. I, was say, I guess that's French Canadian. I sure. know um, I'm the colonel and I know the wizard's <laughs> coming sometime. <laughs> uh, it's the French Canadian. I don't know if he is French Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Yep. That's it, I think. That's it. Uh, yep. Those were the, the main connections. And then Uncle Stevie's yeah. mixtape, the part of the show where we review the songs mentioned in what we just read. Uh, Cameron, you get the first one. I got to go back. Let me can I, can I pitch you on a like a fun uh, if it is another like level of the tower, quote unquote thing. Oh, OK, sure. Dolores Claiborne's husband kills her and he's in it. Oh, and so then we and then we get a uh, Linoge saying, I know you killed your wife. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, sure. That's all I got. Yeah. <clears throat> that would be, well, it'd be something. I it, it just drew attention to the fact that if Dolores Claiborne were there. Oh, yeah. That he would, would have to be, be like, good. hello, Dolores Claiborne. Yeah. You killed your oh, husband. Oh, my fucking God. That would be so funny. If, like, I go back to my copy of Dolores Claiborne. And I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> I for We forgot to mention this part where in Dolores Claiborne, she was like, and then there was that time in 1989 when the evil wizard, wizard came to town. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah i don't 
that would be good. Yeah. Should have done it. Should have had Dolores there. Uh, the issue with it with it is that Dolores Claiborne would have murdered him. <laughs> that, no yeah. wizard can deal with Dolores Claiborne. Right. Like Dolores Claiborne would have like she would have like gotten the whole town to come together and they would have gone home alone on his ass. <laughs> like they would have been setting up traps for Lenoche. <laughs> Oh, we got the mixtape. Uncle Uncle Stevie, uh, he puts together a mixtape for every single uh, book because he's mentioning songs all the time. Mm-hmm. This one may be the shortest one. Is it? Is this actually the shortest one we've done? If it's not the shortest, it's very, very close uh, because, yeah, there's only three songs on it. I got the first one. It's I'm a Little Teapot. One star. <laughs> the only way it could be worse is if Bob Dylan sang it. Uh, the next one is Hang On Sloopy by the McCoys. Uh, two stars. Two stars. Um, I've got, uh, Louie Louie, five stars. Ooh. Well, there you go. <laughs> and that's it. Those, it's worth that's noting. It. That's all of them. Right? It's worth noting that these last two songs don't even really appear in the story. They're just like mentioned as things that someone might hear in the uh, expository segments of the screenplay. So <laughs> really? there we go. Yeah, I think so. Like, I don't think anyone ever actually hears these songs. It's like one of the things where Steve is doing the thing that he does, where he writes these scenes as if they were novelistic rather than screenwriting. And so he gives you like details that are good for setting tone and atmosphere in a novel, but aren't mm-hmm. things that are literally present in the scene uh, as it would be seen. And so I don't know. It's 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 an odd thing, right? It's different modes of writing. Yep. Um, and that's it. Uh, remember that you can go to patreon.com slash range touch. I think this might be the most times we managed to mention the Patreon before getting to the final plug, uh, to hear us talk about the production, the, the television mini series event. Actually, hold on. What does the cover of the book say? Yeah. An ABC television event, uh, to hear us talk about the ABC television event. That is the actual production of storm of the century, which is, uh, in many ways better than what we read because you just get to look at things uh, rather than hear them or like see them described constantly. Um, Also some cool performances and some interesting like special effects work, I thought for network television, just to preview some of my thoughts there. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, you'll also get access to all of our other bonus episodes that have uh, shown up in the past that uh, are have been on movies traditionally, but the last couple were on other things. I think the last one was when we discussed the Castle Rock Kitchen Cookbook and the various treats that we made out of that. So it's a yeah, yeah. people really like that. And of course, we've committed to making our own cookbook. Now. Yes, we did. So we got we got to figure that out. <laughs> yeah, people really did like the the cookbook episode. Uh, yeah. yeah, so uh, go on over to Patreon, patreon.com slash range touch and help us out. Uh, we uh, are supported entirely by by you, dear listener. Uh, appreciate it so much. Thank you so much if you already do support us. And if you want other ways to help us out, uh, you can go to our T-shirt store, which will at some point in the future have the uh, not jerked off by a ghost T-shirt, I guess. I guess we're going to we're going to commit to selling that. I'll figure out how to what we're going to do for the design. How what is the freaking link for it i never remember it's down in the description below down in the description below there you go do that 
or uh, you can go to your podcast platform of choice and leave us a review of five stars. That's awesome. That that surfaces us for other folks. Tell people about us. And if you go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review that is uh, five stars and funny, there's a chance that Cameron will read it on air. That's right. Let me. I gotta. I gotta go to the thing. I always forget. Pull it up. But now I got it. Mm-hmm. Gotta leave us five stars. Um. This is from Jake. Great music podcast. Two guys rate their uncle's mixtapes in the order he made them. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so mm, thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for supporting us if you already do. And you can head back next month to hear us discuss the next book, which is uh, you already mentioned it, Cameron. The Girl Who mm-hmm. Loved Tom Gordon, also from 1999. Uh, I just want to actually mention here that See, 1999 is a three-book year. Um, The last time we got a Mm three-book year from Steve was 1987, just as a historical note, right? So right before, uh, or right on the cusp of the big um, uh, sabbatical, uh, sabbatical, right? 1987 was the drawing of the three, Misery and the Tommyknockers. And uh, 1999 is Storm of the Century, The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon, and Hearts in Atlantis. So interesting how how that kind of aligns up. Yeah, very different. Page count might be pretty close, too. (laughs) Well, because I was thinking, Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon, pretty short. Mm -hmm. You know, that's like a hundred and something page book, I think, right? It's like pretty short. It's it's pretty short, maybe like 200. Okay. But like those other books are, they're they're not, you know, Misery's not the long. Anyway, I don't know. I, I was thinking, oh, maybe he he was like really hammering it out there at the 80s, but no, hey, he's still doing it. Mm-hmm. The, this dude in 99 is still like waking up and hammering out 15 pages a day or whatever. Yeah. Um, it's it's very impressive what he's done. I want to read a, a second review really quickly. This is from Andy from the Discord. Mm-hmm. Occasionally, the ho- that's actually the name, Andy from the Discord. Mm-hmm. Occasionally, the hosts address me directly by name and give me instructions. I always do what they ask, but I'm pretty sure I would have done it anyway. It's funny. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> leave us five stars. Re- re- leave a little thing. Uh, by the way, I want to mention, we often mention uh, Apple Podcasts, but on Spotify, which a big chunk of you listen to this on, you can also rate the show there. I don't think you can leave a review, but you can leave five stars. Please leave us five stars. It helps us out a whole lot. And currently, as of the recording, we are at 497 ratings on Apple Podcasts. So, like, help us go over 500. I think that's actually, like, a numerical hump that'll be uh, helpful. So. Yeah. We don't spend any money on advertising. We don't make you listen to any ads except ads for our own things. <laughs> and all we ask from you in that regard is to sometimes give us money if you want to do that. That's always fun. It's always mm-hmm. fun to give us money. I think that's the biggest thrill you can get in life is giving me money. Yeah. Um, but if you don't want to do that or if you want to do something else that will help us out on top, help us do the advertising by telling people about the show, uh, mentioning it on your own podcasts or on your own blog posts or on your own newsletters or on your own Substacks, whatever. And uh, help us out with those ratings, because that really does move the needle. Mm -hmm. And a fun fact for all you Spotify listeners, we did record an episode on Carrie. For some reason, Spotify will not show it. And so if you want to listen to that, you can uh, pick us up on another service or like go over to our website, rangetouch.com, where you can uh, stream that episode. Because it does exist, just Spotify will not populate it ever for some reason. Yes, I have done everything under the, the, the moon and stars and sun to figure out how to get it to go. And Spotify just looks at it and says, no, thank you. Mm hmm. 
I don't want to do that first episode for some reason. So it it is real, but uh, and it's a good one. Yeah, but that's a good book. Mm-hmm. But but yeah. All right. Well, we'll be back with the girl who loved Tom Gordon, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll continue on in this godless endeavor for someone. I can't remember who. Possibly a wizard. No, I think it's for Steve. <laughs> <laughs>